South Carolina to Oregon, New Jersey to California, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, from your stove to your furnace to your dishwasher, federal regulators are attempting to tell Americans what they can and cannot have in their own households. Ben Lieberman from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here to discuss. It is finally time for voters to have their say, as the first votes in the 2024 presidential election will be cast Monday in Iowa. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. New federal regulations will make it more difficult for folks who want to work in the gig economy. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from R Street's Jared Diederol. And the latest census statistics show low-tax states continuing to gain population, while higher-tax states are seeing population loss. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Federal regulators don't want you to use a gas stove. They're telling you what type of light bulbs you can have in your lamps and even taking aim at your dishwasher. Here to talk about how bureaucrats are quashing consumer choice is Ben Lieberman. He is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ben, welcome to American Radio Journal. Ben, it seems like every time the headlines come out, the federal government is trying to stick its nose into some aspect of our lives to regulate this appliance or that appliance. Have you noticed that that is a trend with this particular administration? Oh, very much so. In fact, we've reached a point with appliance regulations that it's easier to mention the major appliances that aren't the subject of Biden administration crackdowns. Televisions are off the hook, so let's be grateful for that. But uh, just about everything else that plugs in or fires up around the house is the subject of regulations, all of which are bad news for consumers. Interestingly, the Biden administration was proposing regulations on, of all things, our dishwashers. But there was recently a court ruling on that. Can you bring us up to date on that? Yeah, well, dishwashers may be the most overregulated appliance already. They've been subject to four rounds of successively tighter standards on the amount of water and energy they can use. And yet the Biden administration is now working on round five. That will very likely make things worse. But the earlier regulations were the subject of some litigation brought by my organization, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, as well as a number of uh, state attorneys general. And a federal court found that the Department of Energy did not justify its standards and that the, the rules may very well do more harm for consumers instead of good. One of the things the court mentioned was that because these dishwashers don't work as well anymore, People have to wash by hand before or afterwards to get dishes sufficiently clean, so it's no longer even clear that you are saving water and energy with these standards. So uh, the court uh, came down in favor of consumers and against the administration's efforts to set these efficiency standards that are so stringent that you may actually spend more on the appliance than you'll earn back in savings, and the darn thing won't work the way it's supposed to. I've noticed here, Ben, that when it comes to all these so-called energy-saving regulations, and of course, climate change is the reason for all this, and we're we're not 
climate deniers here. We know there's always climate change, but it seems like climate change is being used as the excuse to expand regulation and there are adverse effects. So did anybody take into consideration the fact that, yeah, you have a dishwasher, but if it doesn't work as well, you're going to spend more time, more money and more energy uh, pre-washing the dishes, which I don't think any of us really want to do. Yeah, in addition to uh, wasting water and energy, you're also wasting time. Remember, these things used to be called, these appliances used to be called uh, modern conveniences. Now they're not quite so convenient anymore because of these standards. And yes, you're, you're right. Now climate change is now being used as a finger on the scale by regulators to do what they've always done. In the case of dishwashers now, it's round five of successively tighter standards. And one thing that a lot of homeowners have noticed is that dishwashers now take a lot longer to do a load of dishes than they used to. And that's a direct result of these regulations. Regulators, of course, and all those who are using climate change as a reason to extend government control are always pointing to fossil fuels as the culprit here. So, Ben, what is the status of regulatory efforts when it comes to not necessarily appliances, but heating our homes and furnaces? Is there still a war against natural gas being waged? Very much so. And the appliance standards are being used to help wage that war. So for appliances like stoves and uh, furnaces and water heaters that come in natural gas and electric versions, we see efficiency standards from the Biden administration that are much tougher on the gas versions in order to wean people away from natural gas and achieve this goal of the electrification of everything, which I think is very bad news for a number of reasons. For one thing, natural gas is about three times cheaper on a per-unit energy basis than electricity. So it's good from a consumer standpoint to have it available. Also, it's nice to have appliances that still work during a blackout. Blackouts are becoming much more of a threat, especially as we're closing down coal-fired power plants and trying to replace them with much less uh, uh, reliable wind and, 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 and other renewable sources of electricity. So there's much to be said for consumer choice, including choice between natural gas and electric appliances. But these efficiency standards are being used as a tool to try to push the natural gas versions off to the side. All of this seems to be a bit big brotherish here, Ben, that the federal regulators think they know better than we, the consumer, what sort of products we should buy. Is that sort of an overarching theme here? Yeah, I think it's just flat out weird that there's uh, the, these know-it-alls in Washington that think they know what we should have in our kitchens, what we should have in our bathrooms, what should we have in our uh, laundry rooms. It's, it's just strange, and it doesn't make sense because one size does not fit all. And we all know our own individualized circumstances and preferences better than any Department of Energy expert or uh, politician. The best thing to do is give consumers choices. And some consumers will want them the most eco-friendly, energy-efficient models and more power to them. But these regulations just serve to force that choice onto everyone, whether it makes sense for them or not. And I'm a big fan of consumer choice. And these regulations are always bad news in terms of reducing choices. You somewhat touched on this a couple of minutes ago, but there's this drive to make everything electric, do away with fossil fuels. We want to electrify everything, including the vehicles we drive. And you referenced the fact that we are already having rolling blackouts. Has anybody given any thought to where the electrical power is going to come from 
to heat our homes, clean our dishes, drive our cars when we already don't seem to have enough electric to go around. Yeah, it sure seems like a train wreck is coming, and and some of the organizations that do look at electric reliability are sending up red flags. So we're backing out a lot of of gasoline-powered vehicles and trying to replace that with electric vehicles. At the same time, we're trying to back out natural gas appliances and trying to replace them with electric appliances. That seems to me to be a lot more electric load. At the same time, and for the same climate change reasons, we're trying to retire coal-fired power plants, and we're not even all that happy about natural gas-fired power plants either. So uh, the demand seems to be uh, going up, while the supply, both the the, the quantity but also the the, the reliability of the the, the electric uh, supply is increasingly at risk. So we're, we're we're, we're headed for some real problems until we, unless we start to, to think twice about where we're headed. We have been talking with Ben Lieberman, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And Ben, tell us a little bit about CEI, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Also, where can folks go to read your extensive writings on this and other topics? Well, the Competitive Enterprise Institute is a free market think tank located in Washington, D.C. We believe in things like free markets, limited government, rule of law, individual liberty, things like that. Um, There are some in Washington who still believe in those things. And if you want to find out more on a wide variety of of topics, not just appliances, you can check out our website at CEI.org. Ben Lieberman of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ben, thank you for taking time to be with us. Well, thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth is back with us, and we're finally going to get to the point where Votes are going to be cast in the 2024 presidential election as we have the Iowa caucuses right upon us. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thank you for having me. The Iowa caucuses, Scott, very proudly, Iowans are the first in the nation to cast votes. But if you look back history over the last 20 years, has Iowa really been a bellwether when it comes to identifying who the ultimate Republican nominee is going to be? Iowa has a caucus, not a primary. So the first in the nation primary is going to be a little bit later on January 23rd in New Hampshire. And so this caucus on January 15th is a a process where they're really trying to get committed delegates to show up and caucus for a specific candidate. And when you look at the history, you've got 2008 when Mike Huckabee won. You've got 2012 when Mitt Romney lost a very, very close race by just a couple of votes to Rick Santorum. And then Donald Trump lost to Ted Cruz in 2016. And we all know how that turned out for for Ted Cruz. So, of course, uh, Donald Trump went, ran the table, and was really, really competitive in the primary states. So the Iowa caucus obviously gets a lot of attention because it really kicks off that presidential nominating process. But it hasn't been a big, big indicator of who ultimately the Republican nominee is going to be. The, the exception I think you would point to is George W. Bush in 2000. A president has won the Iowa caucuses in their reelection fight with George W. Bush in 2004 and Donald Trump in 2020. But it is interesting to kind of see how those other uh, dynamics play into this when it comes to the caucus system. Ron DeSantis is, has been working incredibly hard in Iowa to have a strong showing. But the polling shows that Donald Trump is still way up. And I think that the expectation is that Trump is going to win. 
and it's a fight for second place between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Ramaswamy's not doing well in Iowa, but he's uh, hoping, I think, for a third-place finish in New Hampshire. As we look at the votes that are going to take place in Iowa, Donald Trump polling right now at or above 50 percent here. So maybe that string of Iowa winners not ending up being the nominee will come to an end, although we're a long way from the July Republican National Convention. In terms of Ron DeSantis here, Scott, is this a case of where he needs at least a strong second place finish in order to continue? I would leave it up to the DeSantis campaign to say really what they need in order to continue. I think that there's obviously been some media reports that talk about the future of his campaign and obviously how much money they've got cash on hand, how they're comparing against Nikki Haley in sort of this fight for second place. I think the bottom line is it's similar to 2016 insofar that candidates are having a hard time navigating Trumpism. But the difference here in 2024 is Donald Trump was the 45th president of the United States. And that gave him a huge, huge advantage in terms of the Trump base that never left him. They feel like he got screwed over when it came to the 2020 election results. They feel like he's a much stronger leader than Joe Biden. And a lot of people just want to see that rematch. So I think it's interesting. I think it's a real opportunity for Donald Trump to solidify support with a big, big win and head into New Hampshire and then down into South Carolina with a sweep. Speaking of New Hampshire, that primary, as you referenced, coming up here in a little over a week. Nikki Haley, however, seems to be in second place in New Hampshire and somewhat competitive with the former president. And then we go to South Carolina, her home state. So after Iowa, does the calendar start to favor Nikki Haley a bit? That's a great question. This week, we also had Chris Christie drop out of the race. And Chris Christie was caught on a hot mic before his announcement that he was dropping out. And he basically trashed Nikki Haley, saying she wasn't ready to do this and, you know, had no shot against Donald Trump. Nikki Haley obviously is polling well in in New Hampshire. And then when you think about the next race on the Republican primary calendar, Obviously, heading down into her home state of South Carolina is going to be a really, really important thing for her campaign. But gets back to the bottom line here, campaigns at the presidential level are incredibly expensive. And I think that the Nikki Haley campaign has spent over $70 million. It's the same thing with the Ron DeSantis campaign. And some of these other campaigns simply ran out of money. Now, Vivek Ramaswamy has some independent wealth, and he can decide for himself how long he really wants to stay into the race. But it's still like when you're playing poker and whether or not you're pot committed to the chips on the table or if you're going to fold your cards. And I think at this point, Chris Christie decided to hang it up, running out of money and running out of political juice, knowing that he wasn't going to finish well in in Iowa and, and not within the top two in New Hampshire. So it is interesting that that folks have dropped out so much prior to any votes being cast, but I think it gets back to really the high cost of presidential politics and and how much energy and effort that these folks put into place. Now, as we get through South Carolina and we move on to other states, a big, big date is going to be March 5th, if there are candidates still on the ballot. That's when Super Tuesday is, and I think that we'll know probably by March 7th who the Republican nominee is going to be. My prediction is that it's probably going to be Donald Trump, just given his polling advantage at this point. But there's a lot of people out there that are ready to cast their ballot 
make their voice heard. And whether that's for Donald Trump or another candidate, it's all a part of our uh, constitutional republic as we go through the nominating process to select a Republican to fight back and defeat Joe Biden in 2024. Well, the process just getting underway, although it may be settled sooner rather than later, at least the signs are pointing in that direction. However, it gets decided quickly or not, we will keep track of all the major developments with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, as always, a few words, please, about the club. Well, Club for Growth is based out of Washington, D.C. It's united in this idea of economic freedom, liberty, opportunity, and ultimately growth. If you want to check us out, the website is clubforgrowth.org. You can actually sign up and be a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Thank you, Scott. We'll check in with you next week after the votes are counted. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Many Americans want to work in the gig economy, driving an Uber or delivering DoorDash. But new federal regulations will make it more difficult to work in such jobs, as Eric Bame of Reason Magazine learns from Jared Diederol of R Street. I'm probably aging myself a little bit with this reference, but you probably recall the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, Californication. You couldn't get away from it, you know, 10, 15 years ago on the radio. The Biden administration this week engaging in a little bit of Californication of its own, that is bringing new set of labor rules, rules that were first tried and and have failed, frankly, in California, and bringing them to the national economy, rules that are going to make it much more difficult for gig workers, Uber drivers, delivery people, all of that, uh, much harder for those people to continue the flexible work arrangements that they have and that, by and large, they enjoy. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Jared Diederol. He's a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a friend of the show. We've had him here several times before, and we welcome him back to talk about this important topic. Jared, thanks for taking some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, let's go back and let's give some background here, if you can, on on exactly what is uh, this new rule from the Department of Labor and, and like the, the origins of this idea. Where did this come from? Yeah, uh, so uh, basically this has been a, um, a battle for the last uh, couple of years uh, in the political arena. And really the, the concept originated um, mostly in California, uh, where they passed um, a, uh, a law ultimately, first was the Supreme Court decision, state Supreme Court decision, that reclassified essentially all the independent contractors and gig workers as full-scale employees um, and, you know, kind of with all that entails with that, the, you know, payroll taxes, the different kind of uh, uh, benefit requirements and stuff that, that go along with that. And so this is now the Federal Department of Labor, the Trump-era administration, in kind of response to California, really uh, tried to pass a, a, a rule, a version, and did that was more protective of independent contractor status. And now this is the Biden administration essentially reversing that and not exactly copying California, but moving in that direction of making it harder to be classified as an independent contractor or gig worker. We're talking with Jared Diederol. He's a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute, talking about the new uh, Department of Labor rules that dropped this week affecting gig workers. Jared, I think maybe the most important part of this conversation, uh, even though it's a thing that gets missed, I think, in a lot of the coverage of this, the most important part to me is like, what, what do the workers involved here actually want? You've done some excellent research on this including a piece that ran a few months ago at National Affairs where you looked at some of the polling of 
actual gig workers. And by and large, they're not unhappy with the arrangements that they have, the, the arrangements that the government is now forcing them out of. Right. I mean, it, it's, yeah, if you look at, at the, the surveys of the actual workers themselves, 70 to, to 80 percent um, are, are choosing that career as a contractor by choice, um, not because they have to. There's kind of this narrative, particularly in the political left, that people can't get, quote unquote, good jobs, which they define as like, you know, nine, basically nine to five jobs with a full suite of benefits. And so they have to take, quote unquote, bad jobs, which are, you know, contracting gig arrangements. But people choose it because of things like flexibility and the ability to determine their own hours. Um, You know, think of the single mom that wants to pick up a couple hours delivering groceries, uh, for example, on on a a gig app on a Tuesday night. Right. She may not want uh, some other kind of a relationship. So it's just a real uh, misconception that that it that there's just this dynamic of all these workers that are uh, being taken advantage of and that hate that hate these arrangements and want something different because they don't. Yeah, pushing more people into the uh, the t- traditional working relationship, the traditional kind of nine to five thing, uh, eliminating a lot of that flexibility. I guess in some ways, Jared, this this is maybe a, a bit off topic, but this strikes me as as one of these problems that we have with you know it, these unelected bureaucrats making. Like this is a this is a critical rule that will change the way lots of Americans interact with their employer. And yet it's like each administration can kind of come in and, and completely change the rules on this, because I imagine if a Republican comes into office, we'll see this flip back the other way. Doesn't this it says something about the, the state of the administrative state? It does. And, you know, we see this a lot in labor law, specifically the National Labor Relations Board. They're another agency that does labor issues. Um, they they do a switcheroo basically every four to eight years, depending on who is in office. And we can expect the same, I think, with this rule going forward. So we're going to, for the foreseeable future, probably have labor policy that yo-yos back and forth to the cost of both uh, workers and employers, because it's going to create no certainty. I mean, Congress certainly could pass a law on it, but um, I don't think anyone that is a betting person would would bet on that as being a particularly high likelihood. Yeah, I mean, that seems like the solution to me, too, is let's have Congress do something. But, you know, yeah, like you say, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about that. Yeah, it means less flexibility for workers, more power for bureaucrats, and of course, more chances for litigation, more chances for government just to tell businesses and employees uh, what to do with their lives. I don't like any of that, uh, but that is uh, where we are, and we are unfortunately out of time to keep talking about this today. Jared, thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you. And again, that's Jared Diderol. He is a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Check out his piece on gig workers, A Flexible Worker Agenda. That's the headline on it at National Affairs, ran in uh, the magazine. You can find it at nationalaffairs.com as well. Uh, Great piece. I recommend it to you. Jared's work is fantastic. Uh, Everything else at R Street, you can find there at uh, rstreet.org. Check out our work online at reason.com for Reason Magazine. I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Economic opportunity, not good weather, is what is driving population gains in states from Utah to Ohio to Florida. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council breaks down the numbers on this American Radio Journal commentary. For the past 16 years, the thesis of our Rich States, Poor States report has been that economic competition between the states is a driving force of interstate domestic migration. 
The latest domestic migration from 2023 from the U.S. Census Bureau shows once again that Americans are voting with their feet in favor of better economic opportunity in states where lawmakers favor free market, limited government policy solutions. Unsurprisingly, low-tax states like Florida, Texas, and North Carolina once again had the highest domestic in-migration. On the other hand, the usual high-tax, big-government suspects like California, New York, and Illinois had the highest domestic out-migration once again. California, for instance, is now losing nearly 1,000 residents per day to one of the other 49 states on net. Recently, several governors from states that are hemorrhaging residents have manipulated, more like tortured, the population data to make the claim that their states are not losing residents and are in fact somehow bastions of economic prosperity and opportunity. In the recent debate between California Governor Gavin Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Governor Newsom stated that there are more Floridians moving to California per capita than the other way around. That statement was statistically quote-unquote accurate, but a bizarre statistic to cite. The reality is that Florida is receiving far more Californians than California is receiving Floridians. The Census Bureau data from last year shows that more than 50,000 Californians moved to Florida, compared to only 28,000 Floridians who moved to California. In a recent letter to the Wall Street Journal, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont claimed that Connecticut is not losing residents due to high taxes, more regulation, and expensive housing, but the Constitution state is instead gaining population. Mr. Lamont's argument is rooted in the claim that young families are flocking to Connecticut by the thousands and infers that the massive outmigration is due to retirees leaving the state for warmer weather. However, a deeper and more honest analysis of the data suggests otherwise. First off, Connecticut lost more than 9,000 residents on net this year and has lost more than 222,000 residents on net over the last 15 years. As we have pointed out for years, Connecticut has been suffering economically after adopting its first state income tax on wages in the 1990s and growing government in a major way ever since. The claim that Americans are moving based on weather is ignorant at best and a bold-faced lie at worst. Cold winter weather locations like Idaho, Montana, South Dakota, Utah, Wisconsin, and Wyoming all saw in-migration in the thousands. From 2010 to 2020, Utah and Idaho were two of the very fastest growing states in America, with growth rates of 17% and 16% respectively. What do these two states have in common? Well, they're two of the most economically competitive states in America. Idaho ranks fourth best in the latest rich states, poor states for economic outlook, when Utah is rated number one for all 16 editions of our report. As lovely as each of these states are, it's doubtful that Americans are flocking to them from California simply for the weather. Another important story from the census data shows that economic opportunity is a driving force in state-to-state -state migration is the Ohio turnaround. Ohio has been losing residents to other states for decades, resulting in a net loss of nine congressional seats since 1960. Sadly, Ohio lost residents on net each and every year going all the way back to 1982. However, for the good news, Ohio saw a net gain in population and net domestic migration last year. But the Ohio comeback wasn't really unexpected. In the first edition of Rich States, Poor States, Ohio's economic outlook ranked 
47th. Thanks to the hard work of Ohio lawmakers over the years who have cut taxes and made the Buckeye State more competitive, Ohio has improved to 20th best in our latest rankings, and they now have the economic numbers to validate those important policy reforms. For yet another year, Americans' migration patterns send a clear message to state policymakers. High taxes and burdensome regulations limit economic opportunity and relocate people to places of true economic opportunity. Meanwhile, those which pursue pro-growth, free market, limited government policies like Florida, Utah, Ohio, and others will continue to grow and prosper. For more information, you can visit richstatespoorstates.org and alec.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KUKI-FM in Ukiah, California, WRFH-FM in Hillsdale, Michigan, along with WKHJ-FM in Mountain Lake Park, Maryland. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.